You're listening to the Alan Gray Podcast. I'm Sean Munsey, one of the portfolio managers at Alan Gray, and I manage a portion of the Alan Gray Stable Portfolio. In this episode, we're talking commodities. I'm going to be joined by my colleagues, Rory Katiska-Jacobson and Jatin Pillay. Rory sits on the investment team and manages a portion of the equity and balance portfolios. Jatin is a senior investment analyst in our team who spends a lot of time looking at resource companies and the underlying commodities themselves. There's a lot to cover, so let's get started. Rory, before we delve into commodities, I wanted to ask you about your career. You've been at Alan Gray for almost 15 years now. What originally drew you to investing? I think it's I finally found something I'm remotely good at, Sean. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was quite lucky. I think growing up, I had not one but two fathers. I had a stepfather and a father who were both quite heavily invested in my life and in, in my education. And from a young age, my dad kind of encouraged all of us to focus quite a lot on maths. So I think I always had a proclivity towards maths and things like that. And then my stepfather was in the investing games. He was a stockbroker at the old Simpson McKee, and he eventually had his own discretionary investment firm. And so from a very early age, I was exposed to investments and discussions around investments. And I remember we, we, there was a stockbroking competition at school when I was 12 or 13, and you had to pick a share. And I took the easy route then of just asking my stepfather for a share, and it turns out I won. <laughs> um, so that already kind of drew me to it. And then from there, it kind of just grew, right? So I went to university. I did a business science, economics, and finance, quite a traditional route. And I think I always knew I wanted to get into investing just from the discussions I had with my stepfather around the dinner table. And then I was extremely fortunate to end up at a firm like Alan Gray, where I think it's a culture I really buy into. Present company excluded, I really enjoy the people I work with. (laughs) Um, And so it's a a fun job that I can kind of enjoy on a day-to-day basis. And you can get to talk to really smart people and understand how the world works uh, and learn every day as well. Jatin, at Alan Gray, our investment analysts are encouraged to be generalists rather than specialists and explore and research a wide range of sectors. You seem to have taken a keen interest in in the resource sector, though, and commodities. What about it do you find so fascinating? I enjoy seeing theoretical concepts play out in the real world. And I think commodities and resources, they're one industry or one sector where you see that happening quite quickly. So, you know, at university, you learn about supply and demand. and It's this big theoretical thing that you actually struggle to get your head around. But then you look at commodities and, you know, you you see how very quickly the thing that balances supply and demand, i.e. price, plays out and actually adjusts very quickly when one of the two are out of balance. So I guess the kind of more analytical, nerdy side of my personality comes out here. It's uh, one of the areas where I really enjoy seeing that demand-supply balance work out. But then also I think I enjoy the kind of more behavioral aspect of, of economics. And if you think the kind of resources sector is probably one of the prime examples where you know you see the prisoner's dilemma actually happening in real life. You you see kind of companies that collectively know what the right thing to do is for the industry, but then act in their often act in their own self interest such that the the outcome for the entire industry is is worse off. Yeah, I agree. It's almost like one of those sectors where often when you come into the industry you are sort of told that yes, the theory is important, but Often what happens in practice is is very different. And I think commodities is probably one area where the theory, sort of the, the economic theory actually does hold a lot of water and you're actually seeing sort of real world results when it comes to 
comes to investing. I feel like you two are having a little bit of a dig at my economics background <laughs> and suggesting that the vast majority of what we get taught at university doesn't apply in the real world, which is probably true. <laughs> we'll take it from uh, two accountants. Okay, on to the subject at hand. Since the pandemic, it's been a pretty volatile market, but commodities, the physical commodities and the, the miners and the producers have, have actually been a pretty decent place to hide. I guess a few reasons behind that. Maybe a lot of the governments resorted to these sort of stimulus measures to to boost demand, which helped on the demand side, but also as the sort of supply side constraints that we've seen through many industries really sort of makes a difference here on commodities, similar to what we just mentioned here. A lot of these shares sort of drove the, the all share index to these sort of all-time highs over the last sort of six months or so. I think what's quite interesting You've sort of seen that come off a bit lately. And it's interesting in that SA investors, we're quite sort of well-versed in valuing these type of companies. But then when you look at sort of global funds, there's not nearly the sort of same amount of interest in, in these type of companies outside of sort of hedge funds or, or niche asset managers. Why do you think it is almost quite a, like a specialist area? That's a good question. And I don't have the exact right answer. I'm going to speculate a little bit. So I think partly from a South African investor perspective, you have to understand commodities. It's a big component of our local index, and it's a huge component of our economy. And then from a global investor perspective, I think the main reason that commodity companies don't get as much attention as other companies is one, they're boring, um, but two, you don't have to know it. So I mean, if you're a US investor, and you've grown up in the last 15 or 20 years, you've grown up in an incredibly rapidly changing world, with lots of innovation, lots of these next generation businesses coming to market that turn out to be huge companies that are hugely interesting and that invade all parts of our lives. And you understand and you recognize the brands. And these are arguably better quality companies over the very long term in the sense that the opportunity for growth is arguably much greater than commodity companies which are limited to the resources you have available, which are finite, and the less, far less capital-intensive businesses. You don't have to invest the same amount of capital to sustain production or to sustain operations. And the companies in the U.S. have done incredibly well, right? So if you were the, the one guy in the U.S. recommending a commodity stock over the last 10 or 15 years, you've probably been shouted out the room. The producers themselves probably haven't done themselves any favors either. If you think back to the super cycle that ended sort of early part of the, the 2010s. I mean, that was China coming to the market with full force in terms of growing demand exponentially. And the producers sort of shot themselves in, in the foot by bringing a lot more capacity to market and, and driving down prices and, and returns. Yes, I mean, it's an industry that's been historically incredibly pro-cyclical, which is incredibly value destructive in a cyclical industry. Yeah. Anglo-America is probably the poster child for value destruction in the previous boom. 2004, 2005, earnings are growing, business is doing extremely well. And the, and the shareholders don't help either, I guess, is the other thing. I mean, all of your shareholders change. All of the traditional value investors are probably selling out. You get the momentum investors coming in. They all put pressure on management to grow and expand. Suddenly, you get a change of CEO you get an outsider in who makes rampant changes and right at the top of the cycle is making incredibly big bets. 
buying ministry at massively elevated prices um, and destroying huge amounts of shareholder value. That's interesting because when you talk about the sort of cyclical nature of the industry, it's almost like a lot of those bad behaviors seem to have gone out the industry over the last maybe five or six years. And so much so that near the sort of latter part of last year, there was almost like talk of super cycles sort of reemerging. It feels like sort of six months later, the prices have come off quite a bit. I mean, one thing you realize is important to call the point in the cycle at which we're at. I mean, Jathan, where do you think we are in, in terms of the cycle at the moment? As you said, commodity prices have come off a decent amount in the last few months. I think we're entering a point now of, of a bit more realism. The market got ahead of itself uh, on the demand story. I think we all understand the long-term tailwinds behind commodity demand, You know, things like electric vehicles or the energy transition. But that being said, people also, I think, in, at least initially, fail to consider the supply that was coming online, at least over the next five years. And we, we have decent visibility into that. If you look at the supply that's coming on and you, you map it to the demand, even taking into account fairly bullish forecasts for, for electric vehicles and, and kind of transition to, to renewables, most of the base metals are probably going to balance or, and or enter surplus markets in the next five years. That being said, beyond that, it looks like they're going to be real deficits. But certainly in, in the next five years, we, we could see a point where, where commodity prices come off further. And I think we certainly believe that commodity prices where they are today, even though they have come off a bit, they're still materially above what we would consider normal levels. I'm not sure I entirely agree with everything you've said there. So the one thing is, and it's always dangerous to say this time is different, but where I think this cycle is slightly different to previous cycles is in general, the major commodity producers have been far more disciplined on capital expenditure. So I agree with with Jasen that prices are high relative to history. And for some of the base commodities, we are likely to see excess supply in the next few years. But at the same time, we've seen far less capital expenditure than the previous boom. There's been far more willingness to return capital to shareholders. And overall, if you look at any kind of aggregate data, the level of capital intensity across the industry looks much lower than it was at previous peaks in the cycle. And so I do think you could see prices perhaps staying elevated for longer than we would normally anticipate. That's interesting because when you actually look across the big producers, a lot of them have actually had sort of changes in management over the last little while. And they all sort seem to be singing this sort of big shareholder uh, return song. And to a larger extent, it's coming through. I mean, they're paying sort of record dividends and embarking on buybacks and all that. I think for me, what's a bit of concern is sort of always the big elephant in the room is is China. And um, we've seen the news recently on what's happening there in the property sector, a few of the developers going bankrupt, some homeowners refusing to pay back mortgages and uh, almost being corralled to do so by the government. I mean... How, how concerned do you think we should be on that? Because it's obviously a big part of the market. It's something to be quite concerned about, uh, only because China is so big as a user of, of commodities. So you know, China is more than 50% of, of demand for, for most of the large industrial commodities. Something like iron oil, you know, more than 70% of, of, of seaborne demand. And property feeds through China in a few ways. So, so the first thing is directly, if you think property construction, um, you know, a lot of that, that sector is a big user of steel and iron ore is obviously a big input into that process. You would expect iron ore demand to, to decline 
or at least the growth to slow down. And when you couple that with new supply, and there is a large supply of iron ore, a large mine in, in West Africa that looks like it's going to come online, generally those, those things together are not good for prices. But there's also a second order effect because property is, and the, the estimates vary, and Sandy talked about it in our last podcast, but it's about 20 or 30% of, of the China's economy. So more broadly, if there's a slowdown in, in Chinese property, well, it has a big consequence for the rest of the economy, and, and that, that has implications for commodities more broadly. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out, because in previous sort of downturns, and, and I guess a lockdown is a form of an economic downturn, the government's, the Chinese government's weapon is sort of resorting to opening the, the stimulus taps and, and putting a lot of uh, liquidity into the system, which ends up in high-speed rail and roads and power lines and, and property. And they've, they've made similar noises now. You just wonder whether that feed-through system is, is still valid. Perhaps on iron ore, it's probably the one commodity where, as an investment firm, We've been on the wrong side, and it feels like for for a while now. If you had to do a bit of a post mortem on our iron ore view f- from a, a few years back, what would be the big sort of takeaways? And following on from that, do you think, like you said, this time is different now? For iron ore, what has been the mistake that we've made from a client perspective is we haven't had as big a stake in Billiton and Anglos as we should have, given that they have such large exposure to iron ore. And iron ore has probably been the most profitable business for each of those businesses over the last 20 years, generated the largest amount of free cash flow. And what we've always been extremely concerned about is the topic you've kind of been speaking on right now in terms of the level of infrastructure development, in particular commodities most exposed to infrastructure development, so steel and therefore iron ore. And The global iron ore supply is actually relatively concentrated. Um, You know, it's Rio Tinto, it's Vale, it's Anglo-American, and it's BHP, by and large, who produce the vast majority of the world's high-quality seaborne iron ore. And I think, so the first mistake we've made is we probably underestimated the degree to which a relatively concentrated supply can control prices better than a very diversified supply curve. And then the supply curve has also been quite flat. So um, outside of China, where a marginal ton of iron ore costs north of $100 a ton to produce, most of the majors can land a ton of iron ore in China, all in, for between $50 and $60 a ton, if not, if not less. And, and to put that in context, the current iron ore price is around $110 a ton, and it has been well over $200 a ton in the last two years. And so what we've always done is we've looked at the level of builds in China, we've compared them to other countries, and we've said that the rate at which they're consuming steel is unsustainable. That has to come off. At the same time, the four major producers have been investing in expanding supply, and so we for a long time thought the the price would have to kind of drift down to more the seaborne marginal cost, but in truth, it's, it seems to have anchored more around local supply in China. I, I don't know how it'll change in the future. I still think the iron ore price is unhigh, and, and Jaten referenced Simindu, the, the project in West Africa. On paper, that's incredibly big, and it's being developed by the Chinese, and that may disrupt the market, but, but who knows? For me, it was one of those classic ones where, like you said, you had this very concentrated supply side, four big producers, and Vale, the, the Brazilian producer, was always the one 
that was going to flood the market with tons and bring the price down to that extremely flat curve. But guess what? They never did it, and it stayed up high for so long. It does feel that perhaps Simandu is the game changer and sort of references that prisoner's dilemma that uh, Jaten started us off with, where because now one party's doing it, everyone else has to do it. Otherwise, you're going to lose uh, market share. So rather gain market share than than lose out uh, altogether. Shifting from iron ore to some of the other commodities, and I'm thinking here maybe something like base metals. So I mean, a lot of the companies make a big song and dance about the decarbonisation drive and what a climate scenario of sort of minus 1.5 or, or minus 2 degrees in, in 2050 looks like in terms of demand for commodities. I mean, in your perspective, how much do you think this is just sort of marketing spin to get investors interested in, in the stock? Or what do you think actually they're onto something real here and this could be like a, a big source of new demand coming through? You can do the analysis on kind of what these companies are telling us. And really, they premise their arguments on two main things. And the first one is, as we've talked about, electric vehicles. And I guess the second one is the, the energy transition. So moving away from fossil fuels and, and moving towards things like renewable energy. By and large, I think it's, it's more than just marketing. You can run the numbers and you can see, you know, for example, an electric vehicle uses like up to four times the copper of a conventional internal combustion engine vehicle. Renewable energy, something like solar, uses about three times the the copper of conventional base load. You know, so when when you start modeling uh, the copper demand, for example, that can come from these these technologies, you can see how in the next thirty years, you know, something like copper, the demand could probably be twice as twice what it is today. Um, something like nickel and cobalt, it could be three times what it what it is today. So so I think from the demand side, I I, I think the narrative is correct. I think we should temper that with supply. And it comes back to what we talked about earlier, where looking at supply over the next five years, actually a lot of producers have responded to the demand um, tailwinds. So you you can see new projects coming online in in the DRC and in South America. However, beyond that, you know, if, if you expect demand to still keep growing, well, actually beyond five years, then a lot of the producers run into real problems. And, and it's a function of a lot of several things. You know, they've, they've underinvested in their capital bases for the better part of a decade. You're actually running out of decent resources because you've mined out the best ones. Um, so I, I, I think if, if we look over the, the very long term, it, I, I think that the narrative that we're entering real deficit markets, I, I think they hold. Something has to change, right? Because... As you said, the forecast is for some of the commodities, global consumption to double, nickel and cobalt triple, and we just don't have those resources available in the globe today. I mean, if you think where are the next generation of mines coming from, it's coming from not the traditional areas, it's coming from much more remote areas. We don't have the logistics in terms of rail and port to bring that to the seaborne market. If there is a massive deficit, it's going to mean prices are materially higher than they are today, which always impairs demand. So something has to give in terms of technology changes or we blow right past our ambitions of achieving a one and a half degree scenario. And as a, as a kind of a global, we learn to adapt with global warming. But I, I don't think we're sitting here in 30 years time and we actually have trebled our global consumption of some of these commodities. Like I said, it's probably... Perhaps a bit of 
over optimism on the demand side, but on the supply side, I mean, there are huge issues there as well. A lot of these projects that are coming into production now, they've been known about for sort of 20, 30 years plus, and they've been in development for almost a decade. I mean, what's your type of view? How easy is it to find new resources? Has all the resource already been discovered and it's awaiting development or do you think there is actually more resource out there? Beyond just finding the resource, the barriers to development are so much greater today than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago, and, and maybe rightfully so. But I mean, just in terms of permitting, environmental permits, access to land, developing surrounding infrastructure, any new project of significant scale invariably attracts significant objections from the local community. And even if you do everything is completely above board and holistically, it just the, the required investigations and permitting adds two, three, four years to a project before it even breaks ground. To your yeah. point, maybe, all of the things that Roy says are, are true, but you know, the resources are in the ground. You can look at various geological surveys and you know, they're 40-plus years of, of copper still sitting waiting to be mined. So I think the problem is the price needs to adjust to make those resources economical. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the, the problem I think we sit with at the moment is, as you mentioned, you know, it takes eight to 12 years for a greenfield project to, to get off the ground, maybe a bit longer with all of the, the, the issues that Rory talks about. For me, it's more a case of not if supply responds, but how long it takes suppliers to respond. It, it will. I mean, yeah. if the price is high enough, you know, all the copper in the world all of a sudden becomes economical at a high enough price. I just think that perhaps the, the timeline that it takes supply to respond is a bit longer. But that being said, if, if the price is high enough, why not? It's interesting when you mentioned that the price can stay higher for a lot longer than you originally anticipate. And I think now, said in the current environment, some of the sort of in the platinum group metal space, obviously SA is a, is a big producer of, of those commodities. And I mean, the price is far, far above the, the cost of production. And a lot of our local miners are, are making big money. It's, it's interesting to contrast this sort of supply-demand dynamic in this space because on the demand side, actually this is probably could be an area that is under threat from uh, electric vehicles or, or decarbonization. I mean, then perhaps you have to contrast that also with supply that isn't, isn't growing. Perhaps your views on the platinum group metal space? The one thing I can say for certain is forecast supply in South African PGMs has always disappointed. I think if we looked at, at the suite of projects that were going to come on stream 2008, 2009 and forecast what do we think the total amount of platinum group metals coming out of South Africa today would be, it would be 30, 40% higher than what's actually occurring. So the one kind of escalator you're always running up is existing supply is shrinking and existing mines, not every mine, but I mean at an aggregate level, grades are declining, volumes are declining. So you have to run quite hard to stand still. At the same time, I mean, we're one of the few countries in the world that still does deep-level, underground, conventional mining that's labor-intensive. I think we're the only country that mines at the depths that we mine. And that comes at a huge cost in terms of people, uh, ventilation, electricity. So even though the metals are there, I think to develop a new deep-level mine in South Africa would be incredibly expensive. And having spoken to some of the companies, they generally are reluctant to do so. And then the other thing, I guess, as you've highlighted on, on PGMs, 
is the demand outlook is a lot less clear than other commodities, which are all kind of positioned to benefit from a transition to renewables. PGMs, in theory, would suffer quite materially. But, I mean, we can maybe come back to it, but it would also be an interesting segue into energy commodities because I'm not sure it's a good outcome for society if everyone in South Africa, for example, had to get onto an electric vehicle and then plug your car into ESCOM's <laughs> grid and you're not converting coal power into battery yeah. power. No, probably it's virtually signaling and, and nothing more. If you look at current PGM prices, I'm not sure the market itself believes that these prices are going to hold. If you, if you look at the kind of low single-digit multiples that, that most of the, the PGM companies trade on, either the market believes that costs are going to go up materially, which is probably partially right, but then also that prices are artificially high here. I mean, that must be the case. Otherwise, you know, you, you're going to get paid back in, in a few years the entire share price through yeah. cash flow. Again, unless these companies destroy value with that cash flow. Um, we've already seen some some worrying signs of of pro-cyclical capital allocation, as, as Roy spoke about earlier, you know, platinum companies trying to outbid each other to to take over RBP, Royal Buffett came platinum. That sort of brings us back right to the the start of the discussion where we sort of spoke about why aren't people more interested in the sector given the amount of money some of these companies are making it. You sort of feel perhaps they just got to churn out similar type of results for a few years in a row and, and perhaps the low multiples then actually come through into decent shareholder returns. Turning to the, to the energy crisis, I guess that's busy unfolding in, in Europe at the moment. I think the price of electricity in Germany is sort of up six times versus what it was a year ago. I mean, what's your, what's your read on what's going out there apart from paying through your nose for something that previously was uh, a lot more affordable, electricity? And I guess sort of what are the potential opportunities and, and risks for for investors to be aware of? Obviously, also what's happening at the moment is being exacerbated by the war in, in Russia and Ukraine. But I think what actually preempted the current energy crisis, and I don't think it's unique to Europe, it's, it's a global issue because it's feeding into food inflation, particularly in emerging markets, and it's having widespread effects in many countries that are having now like a balance of payments crisis, Sri Lanka is one example, is a lot of virtue signaling over the last five to 10 years has resulted in a dearth of capital going into the energy space in general. So the development of new gas, oil or coal projects has resulted in a significant amount of pressure, I think, being placed on, the, on those commodities. And at the same time, the global demand for energy, primary energy, has grown. And unfortunately, we've been relatively unsuccessful in rolling out significant amounts of renewable energy at scale to sufficiently displace baseload primary energy. And so we've gotten into a situation where the demand for primary energy has stayed healthy or grown, and we've rolled out some renewables, but not enough. And so the demand for the underlying fossil fuels has stayed relatively healthy, supply under pressure, coming back to Economics 101, which we spoke about at the start, prices have to rise um, to meet that supply-demand imbalance. And today, I think you could argue be an opportunity in the energy space because these companies remain so hated. And there's been so much pressure put on not just the, the companies themselves, but on investors and on banks not to invest in these companies and or to divest. And I think a large part of it is virtue signaling because 
we continue to consume the energy that these companies produce and tend to kind of turn a blind eye to that fact. But now it's really starting to hurt. And it's hurting the poorest people in society the hardest because it's feeding through into food price increases. And that's a real societal issue. Um, and I'm not saying we, we can't think about the future. I mean, managing global warming to less than one and a half degrees is also incredibly important. But I, I think to, to, to assume that there's no trade-off or no cost from trying to rapidly divest from traditional fossil fuel energy, we, we're paying the price for that now. The thermal coal price at the moment is stratospheric. I mean, what what do you make of that? Another tangent maybe, but Transnet's really coming to the party for South Africa. Is Africa is one of the largest seaborne suppliers of thermal coal. The thermal coal price, as you mentioned, has gone from sure, $70 a year and a half, two years ago, to $350 to $400 a tonne. And Transnet is railing far fewer tonnes than it did four, five, six years ago. And so as a result... It's really costing our fiscus um, in terms of royalties and taxes that we could desperately use in South Africa. But I, yeah, I think there is an opportunity to responsibly invest in the odd thermal coal producer because it, they're producing something that right now is critical to society, as you can see by the price. And that's not to say that they should then reinvest all of those proceeds in future coal that's only going to be coming in 20 or 30 years. But I think you can have a just transition. It feels like sort of the environmental, social governance space, the the resources and energy sector in particular, sort of front and center of of that debate. And and sometimes it feels almost unfairly so, given how crucial it is to world growth. I guess turning to the sort of energy complex and and how we have exposure to that via our portfolios. We've got Glencore in the portfolio, the world's biggest producer of seaborne thermal coal. Sassel, we, our clients have journeyed a long road with that company, but it's on the up and long may it continue. Jathan, how, how do you go about valuing these type of companies? Given what we've spoken about now, and particularly on the energy space, prices are sky high, you would think, wow, there's a lot of uh, positive sentiment in the market Shouldn't this be the time to sell? Generally, it's it's a bad idea to buy commodity companies when prices are high. But maybe to, to quote Rory earlier, <laughs> the, I guess the dangerous words this time could be different. I think what you're seeing this time, though, is that, say, 2007, 2008, you know, you had very high commodity prices, but also very high multiples. So, so these companies traded on very high ratings. This time, that's not the case. So you have very high commodity prices, but actually you know, the multiples that, that commodity companies trade on today are, are, are very low. So what becomes important now is, well, how long do these super normal prices hold? Because if these companies stick to their word and, they're gonna re- and they return a lot of the, the excess cash flow they earn to shareholders, you could be receiving super dividends over the next two, three, four years, depending on how long these prices last. So that becomes very important in valuing the companies, whereas before, you know, you would say, well, here's the kind of normal commodity basket I think is reasonable. Here's what I think that means for this company's earnings in four years time. I calculate a return from that. Today, you have to forecast potentially very large dividends coming out of these companies. And in some case, you know, that can be you know, two thirds of the current share price. So a big part of the return today, and, and something that we're definitely thinking about a lot more carefully, is when you're looking at the return from these companies in the next kind of four or five years, 
how much of that is a price return or, or maybe a derating in price, even if commodity prices come off. Conversely, well, if commodity prices hold for the next three or four years, you know, what, are you, what is your dividend return? And actually, can you get back most of the share price through that? And in some of the cases, like Glencore, you know, we think that's actually the case. With thermal coal at, at over $400, Glencore trades at a low single-digit multiple. Um, and if that holds, you know, they, they could return kind of two-thirds of the share price um, in the next four years. So that's something that, that we, I think we're paying a lot more attention to in, in our forecasts. That being said, if commodity prices do hold, in absolute terms, it could be slightly painful. And if commodity prices fall quicker than we expect, it will be very painful. Yeah. The counter to that, I guess, is if you're concerned about persistent global inflation, commodity businesses in general are a much better place to be than many other businesses that will have poor pricing power. So what would transpire if we do go into a stagflationary environment? And sorry, Sean, just for the listener that doesn't know, stagflation is a persistent period of low growth and high inflation over several years. And this is far from a prediction thereof is that your costs would rise. You wouldn't make as much money as you anticipate in these commodity companies. But in real terms, your earnings power would probably stay, which is not true for many other businesses. It goes to that whole sort of margin of safety debate too. If the price you're paying in terms of a sort of cash flow or earnings multiple is low to begin with, that does help you put on the better side of the equation. You've got some really weird companies. I guess Tungela is another one where, I mean, they just reported recently they're declaring a dividend of 60 rand per share just for the first half. To put that in context, the current share price is around 330 rand. Um, and if you put in spot thermal coal prices, then their annualized profits are north of 200 rand a share. So it's, it's trading on less than two times free cash flow at spot. But then, of course, if you put in what we probably think is a, a much more normal coal price, then it's on around 15 or 16 times earnings. And that's kind of the, the dilemma that we're struggling with in one or two of these names. You forgot to mention the 100 odd rand of cash on the balance sheet as well. Well, 60 rand of it is coming back to you in a dividend. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps on this sort of in inflationary environment, I mean, the, the one thing that's puzzled me over the last little while, particularly when you put the sort of fraught geopolitical situation on top of it, is, uh, is the behavior of gold over the, the last little while. March, we did almost take out, out the record high. But it's come off quite strongly. I mean, going to hang one of you out to dry. What do you make of, of gold at the moment and perhaps a prediction? So maybe this is one of the worst setups maybe for future shame, but I'll, I'll take a stab at it anyway. Yeah, gold's been interesting because in an environment like you have today, gold should actually be doing very well. At least the, the theory would suggest that if you look at the data since the late uh, 1970s at least. Because gold tends to do well when when you have real negative interest rates. And and what do I mean by that? Well, you know, you've got nominal interest rates, let's say that the US 10-year at 3%, but you've got inflation running at 8.5%. So the negative real rate effectively is, is negative 5.5. To my mind, I think gold hasn't done as well as we would have expected, because I don't think people believe that inflation is persistent as yet. And uh, you know, if you look at the inflation that, that you can effectively backtrack out of inflation-protected treasury security. You know, the market's pricing in 2.5% normal U.S. inflation. Now, if you think, well, okay, maybe 85 is too much, I personally think 25 is too low. You know, if, if inflation is more than 25 um, people are going to be negatively surprised. <laughs> I personally think gold hasn't performed as you would have expected because, yeah, I, I don't think people believe 
that kind of a higher, a structurally higher level of inflation is here to stay. I think if, if that is the case, as we believe, I do think gold is a commodity that, that could do particularly well. I think the mistake you're making is you're using the wrong denominator. So if we measure gold in the new generation gold, which is Bitcoin, <laughs> I mean, year to date, inflation has spiked and Bitcoin has gone from over $48,000 to less than twenty-four. It's actually measured in Bitcoin. Gold's doubled. It's done incredibly well as, as an inflation hedge. Yeah, thank, thankfully we've we've put that sort of safe haven uh, crypto debate uh, to bed. I mean, the, the other thing I seem to think too it's I mean, gold is priced mainly in dollars, and the dollar is breaking out on on sort of twenty year highs, um, and we've got the Fed ratcheting up interest rates either fifty or seventy five basis points a clip each time. So um, those are normally quite sort of large short-term headwinds to overcome and sort of year-to-date you're basically flat on the gold price. So all in all, uh, perhaps not the worst result, I guess. I think, I mean, gold is one of those commodities where it's probably the most divisive commodity on our investment team. I think you're naturally a gold bull or a gold bear and yeah. something you either always see upside or always see downside. With that, I, and it maybe talks to, to broader commodity companies over the very long term, they all screen particularly poorly. And, and it's for all of the reasons that Roy talked about. You know, it's pro-cyclical capital allocation. It's costs tend to follow prices. It's companies wanting to buy other companies to become bigger because they just can't help themselves. Over the very long term, these companies have terrible economics. It's uh, important to, to know when to buy them, but I think even more important to know when to sell these companies um, when, when the signs are there. Final question. Uh, for both of you, and and you sort of got me onto that line of thought. We've spoken a lot about it today, actually, a lot of different variables at play. There's a lot of noise in the market. As sort of long-term investors, what is something that you focus on in your sort of day-to-day work to sort of stay the course through some of these up and down uh, volatile markets? I think in a cyclical industry like commodities. It doesn't have to be commodities. I think just investing in general. I mean, the answer is easier with commodities. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's always important to look to history was going to be my general conclusion. As much as history doesn't repeat, it does rhyme. And when you're in the moment of something, if, it's, if the news is negative, it's almost always not as bad as it feels. And conversely, when things are going well, you know, when you, with the benefit of hindsight, things are really as good as they feel. And so if you look at commodity companies as an example, the ideal time to be buying them is when commodity prices are, re- are low relative to history. 20, 30, 40% of the industry might be currently cash flow loss-making um, there's huge concerns in the press or in the financial reports about one or two companies potentially going into financial distress. That's the ideal time to be buying commodities. That's not what we have today. That was more like the case in 2015 or 2016. At the moment, we've got commodity prices that are high relative to history. But the challenge, which I guess is a lot of the conversation we've had, is that, at least in my opinion, capital discipline this time around has been much better than in previous times. And sentiment around the actual companies hasn't been as elevated as it was at past peaks. Um, so Jaten mentioned the 2007, 2008 peak. You know, share prices haven't rallied to anywhere near the same degree 
that the underlying earnings would suggest they should relative to history. But prices are high, and I think that's something you have to be conscious of. And so I think with anything is you just kind of always have to look back to past examples. What do we know? What is the general sentiment? Um, and try anchor off that. And Jatin, I guess, in, in the non-resource space? You know, being a contrarian investor, if, if you sleep well at night, there's probably something wrong. <laughs> I think we naturally find opportunities where there's a high degree of discomfort, or at least we find discomfort. And I say discomfort because, you know, sentiment is poor, the outlook is terrible. Um, so I think, and, and this applies to resources, but also non-resource companies, I think for me it's looking at the underlying facts and and trying to separate the emotion out of that. And once you've got conviction to act, to kind of stay the course and and, and stick with it, uh, which can be very, very difficult. There was a quote that our that our colleagues at Orbs like to use, you know, it's sometimes being too early and being wrong look very similar. And I think that that can be the case quite often. So that's the first part. But then second part is always questioning your assumptions and looking that well, if the facts change, my mind should change. You know, it's one thing to have conviction, but that conviction shouldn't be dogmatic at the expense of, you know, rational thought. If if the facts change, your your mind should change. So what's your view, Sean? I thought I'm the host on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think for me, like Rory said, is trying to almost harness that negative sentiment to your advantage, and trying to build in some type of margin of safety. So. Often, to outperform the market, you actually don't have to get 100% of your ideas correct. You maybe you need I mean, to get, you never will get 100% no. of your ideas correct. Maybe you only need actually 6 or 7 out of 10. But it's about sort of weighing the odds in your favor that actually, uh, if things are looking so bad at the moment, they just actually have to look a little less worse and it can be a, a, a decent investment. Thank you to my colleagues, Rory Katiska-Jacobson and Jaten Pillay for joining me. And thank you for listening to this episode. We started off talking about the cyclical nature of the industry, some of the macro factors currently at play. We touched on a few of the topical areas and the opportunities and risks that they present. We always welcome your feedback, suggestions and questions. So please drop us an email on info at allengray.co.za if you would like to share your perspectives. Finally, please remember that Alan Gray is an authorized financial services provider. To view the T's and C's, explore the latest investment insights, and to find out more about our product offering, please visit allengray.co.za. Until next time, I'm Sean Munsey from Alan Gray. This podcast was produced by Volume. Thanks for listening.